Amen. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Today is going to be a little bit different than what we normally do. You know, normally we, we have a passage and we walk through that passage from, from start to finish. But today we're actually going to take up a topic, the topic of baptism, while we're between the book, books of Joshua uh, and judges, and I just want us to to look at what the scriptures see and see some portraits about baptism that maybe will deepen our understanding. And I think some of you, some of you may call you into baptism. Some of you that the Lord is calling to begin this new pursuit of Him. So we're going to start this morning in Colossians chapter two. We're just going to read verses eleven and twelve together. It says this: In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Let's pray to the Lord together. Heavenly Father, I am thankful for every person that is here. And I am certain that not a single one, whether they are a guest or they are a longtime member, whether they are here with a graduate or one of the graduates themselves, Lord, I am certain that not a single person is here apart from your sovereign will. And so, oh God, we come and we implore you that, that, Lord, you would give each one of us exactly what we need from your word. We trust and believe in the Holy Spirit that the Spirit can convict us of our sins, that, they can, that the Spirit can wash us clean, that the Spirit makes us new, that the Spirit applies your salvation to our lives, that the Spirit gives us the Word, the Spirit declares the Word, and the Spirit makes the Word make sense. And so, Father, we come and we implore you that you would send your Spirit to work among us in that particular way this morning. We come now bound together in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. So Andrew and I, back in September, we had the opportunity and the privilege to be able to go to Salt Lake City and to talk with our mission partners there. And while we were in Salt Lake, so the way that the North American Mission Board is set up is they have 32 sin cities, which are the largest population centers of the United States. And if you go back and you look at Acts and you look at the way the gospel was uh, was. Uh, perpetuated in the, in, the, in the New Testament, what you'll see is that it started in population centers. People were converted, and then those people dispersed and went and reached. And so that North American Mission Board is very much trying to follow that model. And so each one of those cities has a coordinator that oversees the church planning operations and the mission of that particular city. And Salt Lake City, being the least reached city in the Union, has a person named uh, Bobby Wood. And so Andrew and I got to go, and we got to sit down and just talk with Bobby. And I asked Bobby, I said, Bobby, t tell me, out of all the things that, that you have going on, all the churches that are planning, all the difficulty, Salt Lake City is an impossibly difficult place to, to, uh, to plant a church, at least under the power of man, certainly not for the power of God. But it is a very, very difficult place to plant a church. I said, man, tell me what you're excited about. What, what is God doing that, that, that's just got you just really energized about the gospel? And he started telling us about a series of churches and movements that had started around Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah. Now, as you go from Salt Lake proper to the surrounding, and the Sin City encompasses seven counties, kind of as you move out, the more and more LDS it tends to get. You have very urbanized Jack Mormon culture there in Salt Lake, which is going to be about 60% Mormon. And then as you go out, well, when you get to Provo, it's about 99% LDS 
in Provo. And, and Brigham Young University, in case you didn't realize, is actually named after the first president of the, or the second president of the Mormon church, uh, Brigham Young. And so I said, man, so, so, so talk to me about it. He said, well, we have this college ministry that has started, and it started just through a series of Bible studies. And a, and a guy planted a church there, was burdened, and we started seeing LDS students converted. You see, in, uh, among adolescents, the highest suicide rate in the country, in the country, is among LDS adolescents in the greater Utah, Salt Lake area. Because they're having to live up to a standard of worthiness. They're not disciplined as children because they're viewed as being pure and innocent. And so as they, when they come into uh, their teenage years, they rebel and they're clamped down on. And that leads to all the kinds of stuff. And so they're, they're battling with the despair of just the whole belief system that they've, that they've been taught. And so they get into to bring up and they start, they start to be converted. And as they're converted, guess what happens? They're converted and then they're baptized because that's what you do, right? Like you can't even go through the New Testament and find a time in which someone is converted and not baptized. This goes hand in hand. And so they're, they're converted through these Bible studies and they come to faith in the true biblical orthodox Christ, the Christ who actually saves them. And they are baptized publicly, declaring that now their allegiance has shifted. They are no longer uh, worshiping under this cultic understanding of the LDS church. But now they have declared that they have found in Christ and in Christ alone the hope of their salvations. Not being able to contribute any of their own works to their salvation. But something happens. See, when they are converted as LDS students who are enrolled at Brigham Young, do you know what happens? They are expelled from the school. They are kicked out of on-campus housing. They lose on-campus jobs. Now, if, if you are my student as, as Christians, if our, if our child went to Brigham Young and, and they were there and they converted to, to, to some, they became atheists or, or whatever, they would not be expelled. It's only the, it's only the LDS students. And then, and then, you know what happens? Many of them go home only to find that they are no longer welcomed into their families. Only to find that the communities, the communities which are built around the temple complexes, are now uh, banishing them and not allowing them to come and to return to the community that they grew up in and the family that they have loved in hopes that somehow they will be brought back into the LDS church. And so the question that you might think is, is well, how do they find out? How do they find out? How, how, how does the university find out about all of these students that are converted so that these consequences come in? Losing, ten, imagine, working your whole high school career, getting tens of thousands of dollars worth of scholarships, converting to Christ, and then losing all of that. Okay? How do they find out? You see, nobody suffers for a privatized faith. Nobody suffers for a faith that you practice in the in the secrecy of your own home and you pray to a, an invisible God in the, in the silence of your heart so that no one ever sees. No, persecution comes. Persecution comes. Hardship comes. And make no mistake, that is persecution. It, it comes when you begin to practice that faith in public. When you begin to apply the things that that faith teaches so that other people are able to observe it. So that you actually begin to call for other people to begin to come to faith and to be saved by Jesus. And this all begins for those young men and those young women who so boldly follow Jesus with their baptism. That's what baptism is. Baptism is the public proclamation that I will follow Jesus at all costs. 
It is the public proclamation that I am now identified with Christ. I am now a follower of Christ and whatever comes will come because I have been united with Christ and whatever cost I may incur along that journey, whatever cost I may experience along the path of the cross is worth it because ultimately the cross leads to resurrection. So these young men and these young women in the face of incredible personal cost to them are going and they are walking through the wall through the through the waters of the baptistry and it paints a portrait for us of the significance of it of something that in my, my in my mind's eye has often been diminished now in the modern church diminished among many worship services where people are baptized 15 or 16 times sometimes sometimes because they they're continually in seasons of doubt and in cycles of doubt and sometimes just because they make a spiritual decision and think that they ought to be baptized again. And so you need to understand me. My goal this morning is not to make you question your baptism or doubt your baptism. My goal this morning is to invite you into this gateway of obedience that now you may be nearer to Christ, that you may understand it in ways that allow you to teach your children and call them for it or that you may evaluate your faith and say, you know what, you know what, I know that I've become a Christian since I've been baptized, but it just, I, didn't know, I didn't think it was a big deal. I didn't understand it, and today I understand that it's a big deal. So what I want us to see is I want to see from the New Testament, I want us to see three different portraits of baptism so that we can understand exactly what we have going on. The first portrait, and you guys just bear with us as we kind of work through some, some technical difficulties this morning. You got it going on? All right, all right. I know you got me. The first portrait that I want you to see is the portrait of the new covenant. The portrait of the new covenant. All right, so that, that, this is where I'm getting to in Colossians 2, 11 and 12, that passage that we, uh, that we just read. Let's read this again, together, together again. It says in verse 11, In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, so you see the baptism connection, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. All right, so, so in Paul's mind, he starts with circumcision, and circumcision, circumcision culminates and climaxes in baptism. And so what I want to ask is, how does he get there? How does he get there? What is the connection that Paul is making in his mind that takes us from circumcision of the old covenant to now baptism in the new covenant? All right, so where does circumcision come from? You'll remember back Genesis 12, Genesis 15, ultimately in Genesis 17 we have the call of Abraham, right? God comes to Abraham and he says, I'm going to make you a nation that is more numerous than the stars of the sky. Look and behold the glory of the heavens and see how uncountable, unsearchable all the stars are. And you will know that one day your offspring, your descendants will be a nation that is even of a greater multitude than all of those. That's chapter 12. Chapter 15. I'm going to covenant with you, Abraham. I'm going to make a promise to you that not only will your descendants be more numerous, than the stars of the sky, but I'm going to covenant with you that that nation that your descendants will become will be a nation that blesses every other nation of the earth. And so he sees Abraham's faith, he credits it to him as righteousness, 
And then he enters into this covenant with Abraham that Abraham is going to become something that Abraham is unable to become on his own. And that through this covenant, through this promise that he makes with Abraham, every people group in the history of the world will receive a blessing from the Lord. Now, that's fascinating. Genesis 17, he says, so here's what I want you to do. I want to seal this promise that I have made with you. I want to seal this promise that I've made with you. I want you. Now, can you imagine? All right. Abraham's a grown man at this point. Can we just, let's just, let's just get real for a second. Abraham is a grown man. And he says, you, all your homeboys, all your kids, and all of the babies that come after you, I want you to be circumcised as a mark of this promise with you. All right, so in the Old Covenant, circumcision has two primary roles that it plays. The first role that it plays is that circumcision marks and identifies you as a child of the promise. It marks and identifies you as a child of the promise. Every infant that boy that is born, eight days after they are born, they are circumcised. And what is it a sign of? It is a sign to say that the promise has moved forward yet another generation. That the promise that God has made, that he is going to make us a great nation, is coming into fulfillment with every baby boy that is born. Every time they are born and every time they are marked and every time they are set aside, it is a sign that God is being truthful to what he is saying. And he is multiplying the people so that now they will be more numerous than all the stars of the sky. But that's not all. Also, circumcision functions as the initiatory right into the covenant people of God. Now, right, not R-I-G-H-T, okay? Not like the Bill of Rights, but right, R-I-T-E, like a ritual, right? That it is the entry, it is the, the gateway, the passage into the people of God, into the covenant people, into the covenant community, for you to be marked in this way to so that you are shown to have the seal of the covenant upon you, that you are now a child of the covenant, a child of the promise, and a member of the community. Now, here's Paul's point. That was always a shadow pointing forward. That was always a shadow that was pointing forward. That, that throughout the Old Testament even, we can think about in Deuteronomy 10 when we preached through that not that long ago. Deuteronomy 10 says what? That what I'm looking for is not a circumcision of the flesh, but a circumcision of the heart. That even in the Old Testament, they knew that the circumcision of the flesh was inadequate. They knew that it was insufficient. They knew that it was temporary. They knew that it wasn't going to last. It was pointing them forward to a future promise that would be fulfilled. And one day, one day, God would not have you circumcised of the flesh, but circumcised of the heart. Something that no person can do. Something that is not done with human hands, but is done through the very Spirit of God himself. And that's Paul's point of Colossians chapter 2. That the old covenant has now given way to the new covenant. That the old circumcision of the flesh has now given way to the circumcision of the heart, which has happened by a once and for all ultimate, one time for all time, circumcision of the flesh being the circumcision of Christ. Now what is the circumcision of Christ? It is not... The, after eight days, he was circumcised. Christ certainly would have been circumcised after eight days, being a faithful, coming from a faithful Jewish family. But what this is talking about is this is talking about the cross. It's talking about the cross. It's talking about as Christ was nailed to that cross and his body was mutilated. It was disfigured. 
is talking about how Christ, the God-man, how he was cut off in death from his earthly body. How he endured the lashes across his back so that by his stripes you and I might be healed. That it is a once and for all slaying of the flesh. It is a once and for all circumcision of Christ so that now, now you and I, we don't have to be circumcised of the flesh. Now the circumcision of the flesh is irrelevant for us because our hope is in Christ's circumcision and the word that Christ has accomplished. In other words, it's not in my obedience to the law. It's in his obedience to the law. It's not in my discipline of the body. It's in his discipline of the body. It's not in what I've accomplished. It's it's in what Christ has accomplished. That now my hope is in him. And what Paul is pointing out is that the circumcision of Abraham was always pointing forward to this one day in which there would be an ultimate, once for all, circumcision in Christ himself. Now, what's the significance of that? What's the significance of that? Now, we don't need to be circumcised in the flesh. We need a way in which we can identify with what Christ has done, with Christ's circumcision, with Christ's obedience, with, with Christ's uh, discipline and disfigurement of the, of the flesh, with, with Christ being cut off in death. We, we don't need to, to go through all of those experiences ourselves. What we need to do is we need to be able to identify with what Christ has done as Christ has fulfilled the law. How do we do that? Baptism. Baptism. That when you are being baptized, you are being baptized into Jesus' obedience. You are being baptized into into Jesus' accomplished work. You are being baptized into Jesus' death. You are being baptized into Jesus' circumcision. So now you don't have to die. Now you don't have to go through the disfigurement of the flesh. Now you don't have to go through the obedience of the law. You don't have to go through all of those things because Christ, Christ has accomplished those things. Christ has fulfilled those things. And so now through baptism, it is you saying, I have been marked by Christ. So now, 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 the old covenant way of getting and being marked by the, by the, as a child of the promise was through circumcision. But now in the new covenant, to be marked as a child of the promise is to be marked through the waters of baptism. Because in baptism, I am marked by Christ's circumcision. And just in the, as in the old covenant, the initiation, the init, to, to be initiated into the covenant community happened through circumcision. Now, 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 in the new covenant, to be initiated into the covenant community of the church is not through circumcision, but through baptism. Because in baptism, I have identified with Christ's circumcision. So what baptism does is baptism summed up says, I am a child of the promise. I am a child of the promise. And I am a member of the church. I am a child of the promise. And I am a member of the church. Because Christ has accomplished it. Because Christ has done it. The old covenant has given way to the new covenant. And now in the new covenant, my heart has been circumcised. I have been given a righteousness that is foreign to me. I have been given an obedience that I could not obey. I have identified in a death that I was supposed to die. But I have been raised now to walk in Christ together with the brothers and sisters. I will receive an inheritance that I did not deserve. I will go to a new heavens and a new earth that I do not, I am unworthy of. I am right with God because not of the circumcision of my flesh, but of the circumcision of Christ's flesh. Now I want you to think about what that looks like as we are initiated into the covenant community. All right, so 
if we were to go back to the time of Abraham, and, I, and I've pointed this out, and I wonder if some of you have even picked up on this. I've, I've pointed out that it was the boys. You heard me say that? Because obviously it was the boys who were circumcised. But in the old covenant, there was a lot of exclusivity. Here's what I mean. To be born into, as, as a child of the promise, you had to be born in what lineage? In Abraham's lineage, right? You had to be literally, literally the offspring of Abraham, born in his family line. Then, you didn't just have to be born in his family line to receive the, the seal and the mark of the old covenant. You had to be a boy. You had to be a male to receive this mark of the covenant, to mark you as a child of the covenant. But, 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 but not in the new covenant. The new covenant is not determined by the exclusivity of the old covenant. The new covenant is, is determined now by a new inclusivity that brings and invites peoples of all nations to come and enjoy. Listen to what it says. Galatians chapter 3. For as many of you as were baptized, there's our word, into Christ, have put on Christ. Now listen. Think about the picture I just, I just shared with you. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. No, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one because you have been united in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, this is the greatest, this is awesome. And if you are Christ, then who? You are Abraham's offspring, heirs, children of the promise, according to the promise that's been given. Do you see this? That, that, that all of this was always pointing forward until the day that there, all nations, all peoples, regardless of who your heritage is, regardless of what your last name is, regardless of what country you were born in or not born in, regardless if you were born as a man or as a woman, regardless if you were born free or as a slave, poor or rich, black or white, regardless of what you've done, regardless of what your background is, all of that is now irrelevant. You are welcomed into the body of Christ if you will go through the waters of baptism and identify with the works that Christ has come, you are invited to come. It's been giving way. The old covenant has been giving way to the new covenant the whole time. So maybe you're here this morning and you think, why do I actually need to be baptized? Why do I actually need to be baptized? This is why. This is why. So that you can stand up and be counted as a child of the promise and a member of the church. I think uh, little Mila Chilton has a lot to teach us about this. I, I, the, the Chilton's invited the staff over a couple of months ago, and, uh, and we were j just to have lunch and just to hang out with everybody. And, uh, and little Mila became my buddy. You know what I mean? Like, she just became my buddy. And I don't know if you've gotten to hang out with Mila, but she's, she, if you need somebody to help you have a better day, like, just feel good about yourself, you know what I mean? And I, we all need one of these people in our lives. And so she comes, and she just reaches up to me, and I, and I pick her up. And what, what Mila starts to do is she starts to take me around. And she'll show me. She'll say, this, this is how you get to my room. This is how you get to my room. And she'll go, she'll say, this, this is my mama and my daddy's room. And then she'll show, this is my trampoline. Now, some of you may not know, little Mila was adopted from the Ukraine, I believe it was last year, um, and, and brought into to this new family, right? And, and as Mila has learned, and, and Donna, you probably can pick up on this, as Mila has learned the English language, there are two words that I've seen, I've noticed are her favorites, mama and daddy. Mama and daddy. Y'all, she must have said to me the two words, mama and daddy, a hundred times as she walks and shows me all of her toys, 
and all of her where her room is and, and where the trampoline is and where, where all the, the fun uh, stuff is. And as I, th- I thought about that, you know what? All she knows is that the words mama and daddy are precious to her now because she didn't have a mama and a daddy. But now, now she has a home. Now she has a bed. Now she has a place. Now she belongs. Now she has somebody's lap to crawl up in and pull close and say, I love you, Daddy. I love you, Mama. In other words, little Mila is proud to be a Chilton. She is proud to be a Chilton. And you cannot come into Mila's house and have a conversation with her without her telling you how awesome it is, how wonderful it is that she is a Chilton. Can you imagine a child refusing to take the name of his father? Can you imagine a bride refusing to wear the wedding ring of her beloved? Can you imagine Mila not wanting to be a Chilton? Y'all, that's what it means to be baptized. That's what it means to be baptized. It is to stand and it is to say, I am marked by Christ. I am a Christian. I have committed my life to Christ. It is his obedience, not mine. It is his faithfulness, not mine. It is his power, not mine. It is his grace, not my sufficiency that has brought me in. And so I want to be marked. I want to be identified. I have a father in heaven who loves me. So it is a portrait of a new covenant. Not only is it a portrait of a new covenant, it is a portrait of a new life. It is a portrait of a new life. Romans chapter 6 says, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him, the word united, very important there, with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. All right, so when they began to do excavations of the old churches, they found things that looked like this. Now, do you see what this is right here in the middle? Do you all know what that is? It looks like a cross, doesn't it? looks like a cross. This, this actually was discovered from a church that was in Ephesus. And so that when they began to, to dig it out, this is, this is what they found. That's the baptistry. That's the baptistry. What they found as archaeologists have went and they've excavated these old ruins of, of ancient churches is that many of the baptistries were in the shape of either crosses or coffins. Isn't that interesting? Like, if we ever do build a sanctuary right here and design a church, I think I want to have one like the shape of a, of a coffin. I, just, I think that would communicate something, you know? Now, why in the world would they do that? Why in the world would they do that? They would do that because of Romans chapter 6, because of what's happening in baptism. Baptism is a picture of our new unity with Christ. There's the word, right? Unity with Christ. That we have been united with Christ. That, that when we go into the water... It's the picture of us being buried with Christ in his death. In other words, baptism is us laying that old self on the cross. That Cody that lived for himself, that Cody that did things his way, that lived for the advancement of his own name, 
that lived for the attainment of his own dreams, that lived to make sure that he had exactly what he wanted, the way that he wanted, as long as he wanted it, as much of it as he wanted. All of that person who lived for the things of this world has been crucified with Jesus. The old person, the one who was dead in his trespasses, has been put to death on Jesus' cross. But have you ever noticed that when we put you in the baptistry, we don't hold you under? There's been some I've wanted to hold under. There's been some I've wanted to hold under. But we don't hold you under. Immediately, as we are I put you in, we bring you out. Why? Because you are not just identifying with Jesus in his death. You are now identifying with Jesus in his resurrection, in a newness of life. The old me has been put to death, but a new me has arisen. I am a new creation now in Christ Jesus, and I walk in obedience to the Lord. I walk in passion to the Lord. I have been buried with Jesus in his cross so that I might now be raised with Jesus in his resurrection walking in resurrection power toward resurrection glory in light of all that I'm facing in the here and now. So you see, the idea here is not that baptism forms our unity with Christ. The idea is that it illustrates our unity with Christ. It illustrates our unity with Christ. But now, here's one of the ways that I think it often gets diminished in our day. So, so we, we begin to extrapolate logic, and we say, well, then it must not matter so much. It's just a picture, okay? If it's just a picture, if it's just an illustration, if I'm not saved by the baptism, if I can be saved apart from the baptism, what is the significance really of the baptism? Well, first of all, Christ has commanded it. Christ has commanded it. And he says in Matthew chapter 7 that if you hear these words of him and you do not do them, then you have built your house on a, on a plot of sand. And when the wind comes and the storms beat against that house, that house will surely fall with a great crash. That those who hear his words and do them, those who hear his words and obey them are like the man who built his house on a rock. That if your faith cannot endure the public humiliation of a baptism, can it really endure the scrutiny and the hardship? This is a call and an invitation to faith. A call and an invitation to obedience. But, but, but it's not just that. So, so we might say, well, it's, it's just a picture. But it's not just a cross, y'all. This is Jesus' cross. And it's not just a death, it's your death. And it's not just a resurrection, it's your resurrection. It's not just a day, man. It's your birthday in Christ. Man, you need to celebrate that. You need to celebrate that. No, 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 no. Baptism matters because Christ has said that it matters. Christ has commanded that we enter into his kingdom that way. It matters how you're baptized. That's one of the reasons I wanted to point out Romans chapter 6. You know, there's all these different modes and all these different methods, but I am convinced that baptism by immersion is the way. There's a couple of reasons. First of all, the word baptism, literally to baptize, baptizo is the Greek word, and it literally means to, to dip or to immerse. You, you, so the way we have our New Testament, the majority of it, um, or all of it, aside from a little bit of Aramaic, is translated from Greek into English, right? So they go and they, they have a group of scholars like the King James, you know, famously had all the scholars come together and they, they begin to interpret it and they, they come and they agree on this is what, this is the best uh, meaning or assigning of, 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 of meaning to that text and they begin to translate the verb. They did not translate the word baptize. 
They did not translate the word baptize. They left the Greek word baptizo in the text. Now, why did they do that? Because if they would have translated it as it literally was to dip or to immerse, then it would have been in contradiction to the Anglican church and to the Catholic church, which was, uh, which was most common of the people that were going to be reading. And they didn't want to be in contradiction to those traditions. And so they left it, actually leave it in the Greek so that people might not feel that way. And so if you were to go to the New Testament virtually, um, every scholar of every theological stripe agrees that in the early church they baptized by immersion, by dipping people beneath the water. But I think there's a bigger picture reason. If, if the idea of baptism is to identify with Jesus in his death and to be buried with Jesus so that then you can be raised with Jesus, the only way to do that is to go under the water and come out of the water, right? To be buried with Christ beneath the water so that now I might be raised with Christ out of the water. So that I might go under and then come out so that the old me may, go, may, may die and be, be put to death. And that the new me may now be raised to life. And so I think the mode is certainly significant. It matters. I think who matters? Who matters? I think Andrew did a good job of, of kind of pointing that out earlier. For there are a lot of different traditions, some which baptize infants as they as they come into the to the to the body of the church, and you'll you'll notice that we we don't do that here. Now, why is that? Because in the New Testament, baptism comes after my profession of faith in Christ. Ba- baptism comes after I have identified with Jesus in His death and have been raised with Christ in obedience. A, a, a baptism comes now when I begin to pursue this new life with Christ, and so. Obviously, an infant's unable to do that. Obviously, someone must be able to be, be made uh, of moral agency and able to make those kinds of decisions, to be able to, to take those types of steps. And so, so I, I would want to invite you to, to think through the time in your life in which you actually came to know Jesus. Not the time that you, you were, went through the baptistry, the time that you actually came to know Jesus so that your heart was awakened and you wanted to obey him. So that your heart was awakened and you would say, I actually love Jesus now. I don't know exactly how it happened or when it happened, but I, I know I, I love Jesus and I, I am obedient to Jesus. After that point is when you need to be baptized. When your heart is awakened to see the truth of God's word as it actually is, that it applies to your life. That's when, because that's when you have identified with Christ in his burial and been raised with him. That's when you have been united with Christ so that he is the vine and you are the branch. And you can't tell where one begins and one ends. That's when you can identify with what Paul is saying. In Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. But it's not just those things that matter. It's the declaration that matters. It's the declaration that matters. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 28, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. There's the command. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Do you see that there's a connection there? There's two clarifying participles. It's baptizing and it's obeying. Baptizing or baptizing and teaching them to obey. And so the idea here is that I am making a declaration in my baptism that now I'm going to live a life of obedience, that I'm going to begin pursuing Christ, I'm going to begin going where Christ would want me to go and doing what Christ would have me to do, reflecting the character of Christ in all that I am, in all that I do, in all that I say. And so what we see is that baptism is the gateway into the Christian life. Baptism is the gateway into a life of obedience. In other words, we might say that that baptism is the first step of obedience in a lifetime of obedience. It is the first step of faith in your life to say, Jesus, this is hard for me. Jesus, this is public for me. Jesus, this is humiliating for me. But you've said do it. 
And I trust that your ways are better than my ways. I trust that your direction for my life is better than my direction for my life. And you have told me that the narrow path and the narrow gate are hard, hard paths. And so, God, Jesus, I have committed that throughout this life, I'm going to live not for joy now and or not for joy now and suffering later, but for suffering now and glory later. That I'm going to identify with you in your cross, that I might identify with you in your resurrection. You know, when somebody tells me that I, I, I'd like to get baptized, but I'm, I'm just really nervous about it, or I'm scared about it, or I'm worried about it, you know what I say? Good. Good. And here's why I say that. Here's why I say that. It means you understand something of the humiliation that you ought to understand when it comes to your baptism. It ought to be humiliating if you really understand it when you stand and you say, I am a sinner and I need help. I, I am weak and I need somebody stronger. I am dead, and I need somebody to make me alive. Because throughout church history, baptism has come at a cost. It has come at a cost. I think about a young woman by the name of Perpetua. Perpetua lived just under 200 years after the time of Jesus. She was in the northern Africa part of the Roman Empire. And Perpetua was one of five young people in the life of the church that had found Christ. And they were going through a class in baptism. And word began to spread that they had recently professed faith in Christ. And they were under a time of intense persecution. In which it was illegal to be a, a Christian. Illegal to not bow down and worship the Roman emperor. And so Perpetua is arrested along with her, her four friends. And they go and they stand and they, they are told, if you will just offer a sacrifice to the emperor and if you will just renounce that you are a follower of Jesus, you will be able to go. And she says, I cannot. All five of them, I cannot. They go back to an overstuffed jail cell. She has a, an infant baby son at home. Her father talks to prison into letting him come in and try to talk sense into his daughter. And he, he brings her baby son where, where he can breastfeed from his mom. And he says, my daughter, my daughter, won't you, won't you think with some sense? Won't, won't, you, won't you turn from this foolishness? Won't you, won't you take into consideration your little boy? They let her sit there for two weeks. She held her little boy and she breastfed him every day to contemplate her decision. He comes back and he says, won't you reconsider? Won't you reconsider? She says, Father, do you see the vase that is sitting there? How could I call that anything other than a vase if that's what it is? She said, Father, I am a Christian. How can I call myself anything other than a Christian if that is what I am? She's brought back before the emperor, or the governor. And her father is there, and he begins to plead with the emperor, and pl or plead with the governor, and plead with the governor that he would let her free. And the governor gives her one final time, offer the sacrifice. All you have to do is offer the sacrifice, and all of this goes away, and you go home to be with your baby boy. She says, I am a baptized believer of the Lord Jesus Christ. What happens shall happen. And they say, send her to the beasts. And tens of thousands of her friends, family, and neighbors gather in a stadium as she and her four friends are turned out. At first, they send the heifers out. And the heifer takes her and throws her up in the air, and she comes down, breaking her nearly in two. It didn't kill her. 
It didn't kill her friends. And so now they said, turn the leopards out. And they turned the leopards out. And the leopards began to maul and maim these early Christians as the blood-lusting onlookers cried out and shouted in pleasure. And they said, this isn't fast enough. Kill them. Kill them. Kill them. They came out with swords and they lopped off all their heads. For baptism. For baptism. Because they said, I am a follower of the Most High. I am a follower of the Lord Jesus and I will be marked. I will be marked by my obedience to Him, not by my acquiescence to fear or this age. What about you? One final picture, we'll see it quickly. Third portrait, a new righteousness. A new righteousness. In the Old Covenant, there was always a problem. There was always a problem that they would go through all of these rituals and they would do all of these outward cleansings and they would, do, they would wash their hands and they would prepare their sacrifices and they would, they would have certain ways to deal with diseases and leprosy and, and every kind of uh, imaginable death, all the things that might make them unclean. They would go through these, cl- these cleansings, but the problem was as clean as their hands were, as clean as their face was, as clean as their head was, their heart was still And so God looked forward to the day of the new covenant when they wouldn't be clean on the tops of their heads or in the palms of their hands, but inside their heart. And he said this in Ezekiel 36, I will sprinkle clean water on you. Water. And you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The problem that we have is that we need to be clean before God but we cannot clean ourselves. So Jesus says this in John chapter 3, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus is bringing our minds back to Ezekiel chapter 36 and the recognition that my heart is dirty and my mind is dirty and my life is dirty and I am exposed in my sin before Almighty God and I cannot fix it. I need the Spirit to give me a new heart. I need the Spirit to wash my mind and wash my heart and give give me and make me something that I am ordinarily not. And that's where the water comes in. That's where the water comes in. Of course the water just washes your hands. But the waters of baptism are different. The waters of the new covenant are different. The the waters of baptism aren't you washing off your face. They are an outward picture of what has inwardly happened by the power of the Spirit as the Spirit has cleansed your heart and scrubbed you from all unrighteousness. Not only has it scrubbed you from all unrighteousness, He has given you a new heart, a heart of flesh, so that now I will cause you to walk in my ways. In other words, when you are baptized, you are not getting a fresh start. You understand that? This is the language. When you are saved, you are not getting a new start. When you are saved, when you are baptized, you are getting a new righteousness. You are getting a new heart. If all you got was a fresh start, you'd mess that one up too. 
If all I got was a fresh start, I would mess that one up too. But what you are being given is a new heart, the heart of the living Christ, raised from the dead, dwelling within you, that makes you faithful where you were unfaithful, that makes you clean where you were unclean. Man, you're somebody different. You're somebody new. This is what Paul is getting at in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Feel the weight of this and see if you don't identify with what Paul is saying. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? These are the people that, will, that are not welcomed into heaven. These are the people that will be excluded from Christ. Do not be deceived. The sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of, law, of, of God. And some and such were some of you. I don't know about you, but I think that's all of us, man. Like, like good luck finding one of those categories that doesn't involve you at some point in your life, probably at some point in your week right now. And so he says, all of these people do not inherit the kingdom of God. Where is the hope? Where is the hope? The hope is in the new covenant. The hope is in the new righteousness. But you. Man, don't you love these kind of... <laughs> but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That what we are doing when we are baptized is saying, that's who I was. In fact, that's who I still would be except, except I have been washed. And I want you to see that publicly. I want you to know I have been washed clean by the Spirit of the living God. I have been washed clean because of what Christ has accomplished. And I haven't been given a fresh start. I've been given a new righteousness in Jesus. I heard Adrian Rogers say one time that if you imagine conversion, like going to Florida, that sometimes if you were driving in the, into Florida, you would be able to get out at the state line. And you'd be able to say, I came across the Florida state line at 1106. It was partly cloudy. It was a warm day. And my car was half empty on gas. But for a lot of other people, they get to Florida like they're going on an airplane. You fly on an airplane and you land on the other side and you get out and you say, you know, I don't really know when I crossed the state line. I don't know the exact moment. I don't know what the weather was like. I don't know what the color of the carpet was like. I don't, I don't know. What I know is I see palm trees. What I know is I see the ocean. What I know is I see the beach. What I know is I'm in Florida. Here, here's what I bet. That there are some of you that over the last two, three, four, five years, two, three, four, five months maybe, you've come and you've been awakened to the glories of who Christ is. There may have been a time past in your life in which you said, I, I'm a Christian, and you, you may have gotten emotional, or you may have been a kid or, or, or whatever, but nothing in your life changed. You were not awakened to him. You did not love him. You did not pursue him. You did not go after him with everything that you have. But today, today, you don't know the exact moment that it happened. You don't know when the, when the light bulb went off. You don't know the color of the carpet. And you don't know what the weather was like. And you don't know the exact time or the exact date. And that has brought all of this doubt into your life. But what you know is I love Christ. I love Christ and my hope is in Christ and everything that I have is banked on Christ. What I don't know is when it happened. You weren't necessarily supposed to know. What you were supposed to know is the moment that you make it public through baptism. In other words, sometimes you get to the other side and you say, I don't know how it happened, 
I know how it happened. I don't, I don't know when it happened. I don't know where it happened. I don't know the second I, it happened. But what I know is I've been washed clean. What I know is I've been washed clean. I've been given a new heart. I am a part of a new covenant. I am enjoying a new righteousness. I am united with Jesus. And it's time to make it public. I wonder how many of you would identify with that. So here's what we want to do. We've got four or five people already that need to be baptized in our church. We want to, on June the 6th, to gather all of us together as a church family right after worship. We're going to have food, we're going to throw a party, and we're going to celebrate with heaven that sinners have repented, and we're going to have a baptism service on June the 6th. And I wonder, for how many of you, you know it's time. You know that it's time for you to take the step and to begin to make this public proclamation that I am a follower of Jesus. I am committed to the Most High God. I wonder if you would be willing to be a part of that service. Here's how you can be a part. In the chair in front of you, there's a Tell Me More card. And there's an option there for you to check baptism. All you have to do is write your name and check baptism. Drop it in the offering boxes. And we're going to call you. We're going to set up a time just so that we can talk. Nothing weird, nothing uncomfortable. We want to walk through this story with you. Because first of all, we want to see, make sure that you do need to be baptized. Because if you have been baptized before and you just went through a season, we want to work through that. This is an unrepeatable experience in the life of a believer when you are actually baptized. But we want to walk through this with you and talk through this with you. Maybe you don't want to do that. Maybe maybe the Lord's working in your life this morning. You just want to come tell me or tell one of our elders. Come grab us and and talk with us. But y'all, it's time. It's time. It's time to paint this portrait for the rest of your congregation to come and to join in with you as we begin to pursue Christ together. Let's pray to the Lord this morning. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, and what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.